Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 48. This episode we travel to the Scottish borders on the eve of the Battle of Waterloo for Cullen Doyle's 1892 novella The Great Shadow. And here's Paul to set the scene. West Inch, on the east coast of the Anglo-Scottish borderlands, seems miles from anywhere, especially to young Jock Calder while the Napoleonic Wars are raging across Europe. One false alarm when the invasion beacons were lit has been the limit of his involvement. Otherwise, the current of life has been uneventful, disturbed only by the presence of his more sophisticated cousin, Edie, and the wedge she drives between Jock and his best friend, Jim Horscroft. All changes, however, with the arrival of a mysterious and debonair shipwrecked stranger on their shore, who sets Jock on a path which will end at the fateful Battle of Waterloo. And before we get further into the book, just to remind people that we are going to be spoiling what happens. So if you haven't read it, do yourself a favour Go and pick up a copy now and enjoy. Mm. Now, we've spoken before about Conan Doyle's fascination with the Napoleonic Wars, which has its roots in a family connection to the conflict. His ancestor, Sir Dennis Pack, led the Scottish Brigade at the Battle of Waterloo. And Conan Doyle began writing about the battle and the era around about 1890, probably inspired by the 75th anniversary uh, of Napoleon's defeat. First, there was the story A Straggler of Fifteen, in 1891, which he turned into the play Waterloo, and which we discussed in episode 10. And of course, not long afterwards, in 1894, he would bring to life his great Napoleonic hero, Brigadier Etienne Girard, who we've discussed in episodes 15 and 40, and with Cliff Goldfarb in episode 12. But between Straggler of 15 and Brigadier Girard, there came this short novel that we're going to be talking about today, The Great Shadow, which was commissioned for Arrowsmith's Christmas Annual. Uh, Arrowsmiths itself was a Bristol-based publisher which was founded in 1854 and started out by printing railway timetables. But in the 1870s, under James Williams Arrowsmith, it expanded uh, its publishing ambitions and started to take on fiction. And it met with some uh, quite considerable success, really. In 1889, it published the first edition of Three Men in a Boat, uh, the classic comic novel uh, written by Conan Doyle's friend Jerome K. Jerome. And in 1892, the same year as The Great Shadow, they published Grossmith's The Diary of a Nobody. Um, later, they would go on to publish uh, Anthony Hope's Rupert of Henzau, the sequel to The Prisoner of Zender. Um, so they had pretty good radar for literature, but not faultless because in 1886 they had rejected A Study in Scarlet. Mm. The publisher himself, James Williams Arrowsmith, is quite an intriguing fellow. 
uh, to say the least. He seems to have been quite a, an irascible or difficult character. Arrowsmith was personal friends with another of Conan Doyle's acquaintances, the great cricketer W.G. Grace, uh, who was deeply irritated by Arrowsmith's somewhat slapdash approach to publishing a book that he'd written on cricket. Um, and we see this same difficult personality in Arrowsmith in Conan Doyle's description of the origins of the commissioning of uh, The Great Shadow, which he recounted in a letter to his mother in December 1891. He wrote, I've been having a correspondence with Arrowsmith of Bristol. He wanted me about 24 months ago to do a book for his shilling series and offered to pay me a royalty on it. I wanted £100 and on that we quarrelled, he sending me a rather impertinent card of which I took no notice. End of Act 1. A year ago, he wrote offering me £100 in advance on such a book. I answered that my price was now £200. He collapsed and was silent. End of Act 2. <laughs> Last week, he wrote asking me to do the book, 60,000 words, at that price. I replied that my price was now £400. Frantic howls came from Bristol with much repentance as to the past. So now I have agreed to do a 50,000 worder for £250 as an advance on a 20% royalty. I retain American and continental rights. And indeed, Doyle did go on to write the, the novel. He wrote it between April and June 1892. It was submitted by August. Uh, and he actually started the writing while he was on a trip to Edinburgh with his friend J.M. Barry. But while the story was commissioned by Arrowsmiths, Conodore had smartly retained the American and commercial rights, and he sold the book to S.S. McClure of the Associated Newspapers Agency in the USA. And uh, so The Great Shadow actually made its first appearance in American newspapers in autumn 1892. Its first UK release, though, was in Arrowsmith's Christmas Annual, which actually came out on the 31st of October, 1892. Uh, only a few weeks later, Conan Doyle received news, though, that Arrowsmith had already sold 27,000 of the 30,000 copies, uh, which was pretty impressive considering the Christmas season had only just started. Conan Doyle would later go on to write more for Arrowsmith. He wrote a, a fun little tale of the sea called The Slapping Sal, which came out the year later. So today we're concerned with that UK edition that came out at the end of October 1892. The first US single volume edition came out by Harper's uh, two weeks later, um, although it was actually dated 1893 when published. Now, the structure of the story is actually a, a fits pretty neatly into three acts, the first of which is around the sort of domestic setting of uh, life in West Inch and the arrival of Cousin Edie into the household of Jock Calder and into the lives of Jock and his best friend Jim. The second act is the arrival of a mysterious stranger from over the sea. And the third and final act is, uh, is actually the Battle of Waterloo. And all of them connect in some way to one particular inspiration, which really comes across in the first two of the acts, which is um, a terrific story that Conan Doyle regarded very, very highly, which was Robert Louis Stevenson's The Pavilion on the Links. Yes, a pavilion on the links is is a really important story um, mm. in in Ewan Conan Doyle's literary development. Yeah, uh, it first appeared in the Cornhill magazine in eighteen eighty. Um, Doyle first read it in eighteen eighty two, and he describes it in in Through the Magic Door in nineteen oh seven as the very model of dramatic narrative. Hmm. 
Um, I, he was hugely enthusiastic about this story, and 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 you know, in letters to his mother, he he actually recommends it, and really, um, it's it, its its effect it was was you know pretty profound. Yes, uh, yeah. and you can see this throughout his 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 work. Actually, there's a number of his stories are very very strongly influenced by this. So you got you're the, the the man from Archangel in 1885, Uncle Jeremy's household in 1887, The Mystery of Clumber 1888, uh, Our Midnight Visitor in 1891 and The Great Shadow. All hmm. the, the 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 plots owe an awful lot to the 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 pavilion on the links. The story itself, the Stevenson story, is essentially um, the story of two two old friends uh, in in Scotland on the east coast of Scotland fall out with each other, mm. um, and one of them, Northmore, owns the, uh, the 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 pavilion on the links at, at a place called uh, Graden Easter. Yes, um, <clears throat> and and his friend Frank Casillis comes back years later and and camps out in near to the pavilion and finds himself in the middle of all these kind of strange shenanigans to do with Northmore. Um, yes. And it's basically Northmore's got involved, uh, tied up in, in, a, in a plot involving the Italian Carbonari. And, yes. and the, the pavilion is, is, is under siege. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great adventure story with, with a, a, a love story tied in as well, a love triangle, which we'll, we'll find also has uh, connections to, to the great shadow. Mm. Um, and there's, there's another part of the story as well with Pavilion on the Links involving a disgraced banker, which you find reflected in two more of Doyle's stories, uh, the, the Sealed Room in 1898 and Black Peter, yes. Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes' adventure from 1904. Yeah. So th- this yeah. this had really got under his skin, this 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 whole story. And, and of course, he was a, a great fan of Stevenson anyway. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and there's, a, there's a whole sense um, in The Great Shadow. You can, you, you can it feels Stevensonian, very much so. Um, but this this story in particular, Pavilion on the Links, yeah, we 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 wouldn't have the Great Shadow without the Pavilion. No, on the we definitely we definitely wouldn't. And also, mm. I mean, Conan Doyle was a real connoisseur of this story because he, mm. he in through the Magic Tour, he makes a distinction between the two editions, doesn't mm. he? He mm. talks about mm. the original Cornhill edition, which has a a different framing device mm. to to a sort of well, he described it as an emasculated version yes. in, in New mm. Arabian Nights. Um, which does, in fact, mess around with the setup, doesn't it? Mm, and, uh, mm. um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's an incredible story, and you write about those echoes because you have a, a, a bog of quicksand, which um, mm-hmm. which is very much <laughs> like the Grimpen Mire in the Hound of the Baskervilles, the Graden Flow on the coast. It, it's yes, it, it ties in with 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 um, the Great Grimpen Mire, and also with um, the, the the Great Bog of Cree. Yes, in um, the Mystery of Clumba, which is an early version of of of, of the Grimpen Mire, essentially. Yeah. And it's, it is it is all, all taken from the, um, the the sands, and um, and it's also interesting as well. You look at the the, the place name um, in Pavilion on Links, Graden Easter. Yes. And then in the Great Shadow we have West Inch, yes. both on the east coast of Scotland. Uh, it's you know the the the, the links, so to speak, are there. Yeah, completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean you've got the Scottish border setting. You've got that the in place of this remote pavilion, you've got the, the remote farmhouse of Calder and his family. You have mm. the, the two old friends who then are at odds with each other. Although interestingly, in Pavilion on the Links, they are uh, 
uh, they're both, basically both misogynists, aren't they? That's the kind of setup to the mm-hmm. uh, to the actual to the to the love interest. That, that well, this is like. a great um, bit at the start of Pavilion on the Links, where where the the, the narrator is, is Frank Casillas. Um, says we 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 saw ourselves as great. It's something like we saw ourselves as great misanthropes. In fact, we were just a couple of sulky fellows. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. And 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 Doyle again does this sort of thing with with you know the the, the narrator in in uh, the Man from Archangel. Yeah, is yeah, yeah. is exactly that sort that's of right. character as well. And 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 like Stevenson, Doyle is is doing a gentle mockery. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the other the, the the love triangle bit, as you say, that's the central part of Pavilion on the Links as well. Mm. That that is an obvious um, influence on this the first act in particular of mm. the Great Shadow, where you have uh, the arrival of cousin Edie, who comes mm. into the lives of Jock and and Jim, and comes between them essentially. And um, I was reminded here of a real life influence on Conan Doyle, which was uh, Elmore Weldon. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the fiance he had before he met uh, Louise, who had become his first wife. There seem to be a fair few connections, I think, here between Elmo, as she was known, mm-hmm. uh, and, and cousin Edie. The background is that Conan Doyle met Elmore Weldon when he was visiting his Foley family re- relatives in Lismore in Western Ireland mm-hmm. in July 1881. Um, and Elmore was um, evidently a, a friend of the family or mm-hmm. potentially a distant relation but she lived with her aunt in Lismore and she was independently wealthy in the same way as the character of Edie mm. is here and um and much the same way as Jim Horscroft wants to go off and prove himself um by in his case uh, studying medicine at Edinburgh Conan Doyle who'd already studied medicine at Edinburgh decided he wanted to go off and and have a career and a uh, funds of his own uh, and he took um this job as a surgeon on the SS Mayumba to West Africa, um, which um, that journey took place between October 1881 and January 1882. On his return from West Africa, he, Conan Doyle, returned to um, a posting in Aston in Birmingham, and he, um, uh, the affair sort of cooled between him and Elmore. And then it was back on again when he was setting up in South Sea, uh, and uh, they actually planned to marry in spring 1883, but again, over the kind of the winter months preceding uh, the spring, that the, the the whole affair cooled, and they finally separated. And there are two possible reasons why this uh, relationship didn't come off. One of them is that Elmore does seem to have had health problems, and in a sort of quite horrible echo of what would happen. One of the possible health problems here was tuberculosis, mm. which of course affected Conan Doyle's first wife. The um, second reason, though, and this is probably the more significant, is that Mary Doyle, Conan Doyle's mother, really didn't seem to get on mm. with Elmore at all. Mm. <laughs> so at that point, um, uh, at that point, the relationship was off. But it, it is interesting that you see this character of Edie appear in it, who who has a touch also of kind of Gladys in the Lost World. Mm-hmm. Um, Elmore may well be this kind of muse in Conan Doyle's uh, early writing career. If you think about that period of time that they were sort of on and off, um, 1881, 1882, he wrote a lot of um, a lot of his early fiction. There's um, Little Square Box, there's um, Bones, Derby Sweepstakes, uh, that veteran, the captain of the Pole Star comes into this period as well. 
And after they'd separated, he he went on to write a story called The Heiress of Glen Mahowley, which came out in January 1884. It's a very fun little story. Um, and he's really kind of pastiching his whole troubled relationship with uh, with Elmo. So it might be that, you know, Elmo was a, uh, a muse of some way, if not, uh, if not artistically, then maybe commercially, because she seems to have, you know, pushed him into a lot of this sort of early commercial writing. Yeah, there the, the definitely does seem to be um, an element of, 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 of Elmo coming into this story. And it's, it's, hmm. it's written at a time when he's, he, you know, he's comfortably ensconced in his marriage with, with Louise. Yeah. And, and it, it's almost like he's looking back. Yes. And, and putting it into context and then maybe upping the ante. Yes. Um, in terms of the character and, and, and turning yeah, the, the, the Edie character, I mean, she is a user. Yes, she, she is. enjoys being in control of the game. Mm. Um, mm. And, and, you know, maybe there's an element of bitterness from, from Doyle there. Or, you know, there is also that she fits into a type. Yes. For this sort of fiction. I mean, um, there, there seems to be quite a, a bit of semi-autobiographical reflection yeah. going on generally in this. I mean, the, the passage that, that struck me particularly, not so much, not to do with the, the, the love triangle elements, but, but where West Inch is on the borderlands of, of <laughs> Scotland and England, he talks about the positioning of the house. Yes. And says, uh, there was one queer thing about the house of West Inch. It has been reckoned by engineers and other knowing folk that the boundary line between the two countries ran right through the middle of it, splitting our second best bedroom into an English half and a Scotch half. <laughs> now, the cot in which I always slept was so placed that my head was to the north of the line and my feet to the south of it. Yes. And this really just strikes me as, as you know, Doyle reflecting on his own Scots-Irish heritage and, and his own desire to move into a, a world of Englishness. Yes. Um, and this is all getting thought about here but in, again in a very playful way yeah. and and the way it's done and I, I i love that phrase the second best bedroom yes the second <laughs> best bedroom <laughs> it's it's again the sign of, of of what a good writer he was becoming little touches again like that yeah um really really make it yeah there's a, there are lots of lots of pieces like that in here actually on that on that topic of scots and english there's there's a line later isn't there about um a little debate about Scottish independence at one point where mm. French character is sort of saying, aren't you Scots really offended by the fact that you're, you're being bossed around by the English and mm. your laws are being made in London. Mm. And um, Jock with great irritation replies, <laughs> well, you know, we put our King over the English. So if there's mm. any problem, it should be coming from down there. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's, it, but there's a, there's lots of nice little zippy dialogue in this and zippy exchanges as well. I mm. think um, it's a it's a great piece of writing. I mean, the, the other thing that struck me on the, the sort of semi autobiographical, and you know, it, it gets dangerous. You could read too much in that. Yeah, of course. But there is the thing with the father. <laughs> yes, he suddenly changes character. You've got him as a quite quite sturdy, steady character, and then when he's offered the gold by de Lissac, suddenly this this grasping yeah. character comes out, and he, he reminded me very much of old McIntyre. Yes, old McIntyre. Um, the doings of Raffles Hall. Yeah. There's this sudden, and again, it's... Character change. Yeah, and, and, and the kind of, the having digs at the father figure. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, in danger of really reading a lot into it. Jim Horscroft, when he's comes back from Edinburgh with his diploma in hand, is doing a little jig and waving it in the air. And I was reminded then of Conan Doyle's wonderful little <laughs> drawing he did of himself with a jig when he had his diploma mm. with, with written license to kill underneath yes. it. <laughs> <laughs> and while we, we're talking about this, this aspect of, of the great shadow, and we talk about the influence of the pavilion on the links, mm. um, later on there's, there's another novel which, which I, I wonder if, if, if Doyle influenced, um, which is The Free Fishers. By John by Buchan, um, which which was published in 1934. It's Buchan's only Napoleonic stroke Regency novel, mm. um, and the Free Fishers are a, they're a sort of smuggling organisation, but who yeah. also work for the government against the French, mm. and during the Napoleonic Wars. But that again, much of the story is set on uh, the east coast of Scotland. Mm. Um, and and has this, lots of the elements that Doyle likes. There's a, there's a fantastic Regency book, Saturno Wise, who loves who loves his racing and his boxing. Um, and it, it's it's the, 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 there are elements of, of, of similarity. Uh, and again, there, there are I mean, in in the Three Fishers, there's not only one love triangle. There's two. Yes. Uh, so it ups the ante enormously. And very Stevensonian as well. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, just just like this, it, the the influence of Stevenson on both Doyle and Buchan. Yeah. Um, is 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 immense. Um, and it, it shows in the, the these sort of stories in particular can allow with this, this great sweep of adventure um, yeah. going on in them both. and, and um, But the, there's also a, a, a wonderful quote from Buchan's granddaughter who wrote his biography recently, who describes The Three Fishes as a Georgette Heyer novel, but written by a man. It's <laughs> just it's wonderful. But again, it, it does, it, it fits into this whole school of fiction. And, and it's just yeah. interesting that the three pavilion on the links, Three Fishes and The Great Shadow all have these, locations on the east coast of scotland um, yes where, where these sort of events you you, you can you conceivably see them happening yeah well the, the the big event that happens um really happens in in, <clears throat> in the second act which is the arrival of a mysterious stranger from mm. uh from over the sea and this is uh the character with a with a rather peculiar name lap who <laughs> um we later discover is in fact um Bonaventure de Lissac, who is a uh, a great French Napoleonic hero, he's uh, he's served in all manner of different battles, and we we slowly unpick his career over the course of the the rest of the book. But he has this kind of proto Gerard like quality of having been everywhere and done everything mm. um, uh, at different times, having served um, from the age of fourteen onwards, and uh, and his. His career, it turns out, is uh, encompasses everything from Corona to uh, the retreat from Moscow, mm-hmm. and ultimately uh, takes him to uh, to to Waterloo. But Delisac is a is a a wonderful character, and could so easily be any number of people from the history of the period. There are so many rich and vibrant characters that uh, Conan Doyle is is pulling from in creating the character of Delisac, who. Who inveigles his way into the into the Calder family household, and while this was written before the Brigadier Gerard stories, you know this idea that Delisac may be in some way connected to um, Gerard uh, actually comes out in one of the reviews of the Great Shadow. 
There's a review in the Daily News, uh, 31st of October, 1892, which makes a direct connection to one of the great influences on on Gerard. It says, uh, uh, the intrepid French Voltigeur de la Garde, with his courtly manners, his wide experience of battlefields, and his indifference to danger and physical suffering, who is so strikingly depicted, may have been suggested by General Marbo's unconscious description of himself. You know, Marbo being one of the great influences on the character of Gerard. Yeah, and it, it's the, the the timing fits in mm. uh, as well with this very nicely because again this ties into the whole growth of of, of Doyle's interest in the Napoleonic period. Um, as you've mentioned earlier, Mark, there was the seventy fifth anniversary of Waterloo, mm. but there was also an awful lot of uh, Napoleonic memoirs, both yes. British and French, being published at this time. There was yeah, a yeah. real um, outpouring of interest. Um, and and one of those at this this point had come into English translation in 1892, which was the the memoirs of of Baron de Marble. Um and we know the date at which Doyle was was introduced to this. Um, because it was March 1892 mm. um, when he visited uh, George Meredith. Yes, uh, and Meredith recommended uh, Marbo uh, to Doyle, and and um, I, I've no doubt that that he went out uh, and bought a copy. Yeah, um, straight away on re- recommendation, and possibly read it in the original French rather than the new translation. Yeah, um, because in in through the magic door, um, Doyle talks about his edition being being the the, the red and gold yes. bound French edition. French edition, very specific about that. Mm. Um, so, if he was reading this at the same time as he was writing, um, the Great Shadow. It, it 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 all ties in. I mean, I I I do think uh, De Lissac is is a compound character. Yes, like, absolutely. Like Gerard is. Um, yeah. Mar- Marbo is important. Marbo is even more important to Gerard, definitely. Yeah. They're both compound characters of various uh, French officers of of the time. Mm. Um. And what's interesting as well is that that they're very different. Yeah, they are. Gerard and De Lissac are not the same character by any no. means. Um, and and it's it's one of the things where, where you know, Doyle can really understand this. Um, he differentiates because with the, the Lissac, we are talking about an infantry officer. Yeah. Uh, whereas Gerard is 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 a, a cavalry officer. And very different characters, and and yeah. they both, you know, they both have this this boastfulness about them, and they're, they're both amusing characters. I, I I tend to think De Lissac is the more dangerous. Yes. Of the two characters, definitely. He's, he's got a harder edge to him. He's certainly smarter. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Quite definitely. Um, and, and again, you get the sense that, that, that Doyle is, is at this time learning about the, the structures of Napoleon's army. Um, very specific about um, De Lissac being um, a colonel in the uh, Voltigeur of the mm. Guard, mm. Um, who are actually part of the the, the, the the middle of the young guard rather than the old guard. Um, formed the, the Voltigeur were formed in 1810, um, but you'd have a mix of officers from various units going in mm. um, to keep the, the whole thing fresh, and you'd have a, a mix of, of of new men with with the uh, with the veterans. Mm. Um, and obviously, Lissac is 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 a veteran, as we know. Mm. Um, going back to to the 1790s, I mean, he he points out about having been in a battle of five nations, which would be 1799-1800. Mm. Um, I don't know what battle that would be, but certainly this is the time of the Second Coalition, which was made for five nations, yeah. which is Britain, Austria, Russia, Turkey, and Naples. Mm. 
Um, but they, those five nations certainly were never fighting one battle together. No, that's right. No, um, but this is part of Dillisac's boastfulness as yeah, well. It's, absolutely, it's just getting him exaggerating. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, it's worth saying as well. The, there's another character who actually recognises Dillisac. Uh, which is Ma- mm. Major Elliot. Mm. Uh, Major Elliot is a lovely little character. He's Jock's neighbour in West Inch. And mm. Major Elliot is described as having uh, three wives and 12 battles to his name, <laughs> which is a great, great description. But he recognises de Lissac, but then in this kind of entirely believable, I think, mm. way, won't reveal to Jock or to Jim how he knows de Lissac. He keeps it entirely under wraps. Mm. And part of the context to this is that when de Lissac arrives, this is after Napoleon has been exiled to Elba and before his return. And so he, it, it, there's a sense in which the whole, all of Europe is trying to recover and calm itself after this mm. you know, 25, almost 25 years of, 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 of war. And, and Elliot knows that, that de Lissac isn't there to foment trouble. Yes. And probably thinks he's lying low because you've got the the the, the, the first version uh, of the, um, the, the 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 royalist white terror against yes. Bonapartists is beginning in 1814. It really come to fruition after Waterloo, mm, but mm. Elliot will realise this and and admiring de Lissac as a fellow soldier, fellow brave brave man, doesn't want to shop him to the authorities to be sent back to the Bourbons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, for all that, he still manages to ferment some kind of trouble because oh, yes. he comes in between uh, poor old poor old Jock having lost Cousin Easy to Jim. Jim then loses Cousin Easy to, Easy to De Lissac. And uh, the end of Act Two is uh, De Lissac and Cousin Edie, now married in secret, mm. um, have uh, get on a get on a boat and return to France um, at the same time as we hear that the monster has returned. Yes. So that brings us to the third and final act of The Great Shadow, and it's the bit for which it is perhaps best known, which is recounting the Battle of Waterloo. We end Act 2 with Jock and Jim being recruited by Major Elliot to join uh, him as he as he heads over to, uh, to Europe. And um, Conan Doyle sets up this whole last third in a, in a in a very good opening paragraph of chapter 11, uh, which goes like this. And now I come to a bit of my story that clean takes my breath away as I think of it and makes me wish that I had never taken the job of telling it in hand. For when I write, I like things to come slow and orderly and in their term, like sheep coming out of a paddock. So it was at West Inch. But now that we were drawn into a larger life, like wee bits of straw that float slowly down some lazy ditch, until they suddenly find themselves in the dash and swirl of a great river. Then it's very hard for me, with my simple words, to keep pace with it all. But you can find the cause and reason of everything in the books about history, and so I shall just leave that alone and talk about what I saw with my own eyes and heard with my own ears. And it's that is entirely what he does in this last, glorious last third of this book, really, where he actually depicts the Battle of Waterloo, but from the perspective of a single soldier on the battlefield. And it's really quite something. Yes, it's it's interesting the, the, the point you make there, Mark, about this being point of view. Mm. Uh, and he's just you know, a, a standard private soldier um, in the 71st Highland Regiment of Foot Light Infantry. Yeah. So he's got that perspective on, on the part of the battle that he can see. You know, yes. no sense of the grand strategy and tactics of the battle. Mm. But you, you, you've got 
him able to see that and he he's part of this the 71st uh were part of the third light infantry brigade which also had the 52nd light infantry uh oxfordshire regiment um and the second battalion of the 95th rifles and two companies of the third battalion of the 95th rifles mm. so a, 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 you know, a large light infantry unit yeah um, but one of the uh, the officers involved with that, um, Colonel uh, Colborne of the 52nd, he left an interesting passage about the the, the, uh, the whole point of view. Yeah. Uh, where he says, um, we were all so intent in performing our own parts that we are disposed to imagine that the brigade or corps with which we were engaged played a most distinguished part and attribute more importance to the movements under our own immediate observation than they deserved. I am persuaded that none but mounted officers can give a correct account of the battle, <laughs> and very few of those had an opportunity of seeing much beyond the limited space which they traversed. Yeah. So yeah. that gives you a really good um, sort of point of view of uh, a, a senior infantry officer mm. uh, at, the, at the time, um, and, and saying even uh, even those on horseback yeah. couldn't, couldn't get see. a sense. And of course, the whole battlefield will be wreathed in smoke. Yes. From the beginning. Well, there's a wonderful moment quite late on in the battle where they, they break through the the smoke in front of them mm. and then they see the totality of the French army. Mm. Um, but but for the most part, these are almost vignettes of moments on the battlefield. Mm. And um, they are, they're very human, aren't they? Mm. He's, he gets some terrific moments of soldiers who are being incredibly brave and you get people who are going to going to pieces um you get the horrors of war my goodness mm. he really mm. does this is not you know conan Doyle couldn't can be accused occasionally of of maybe glorifying um but he's not glorifying in in the great shadow at mm. all this has mm. got some really horrendous pieces i mean there's there's one section where he he talks about um how the cannonball cuts through the infantry mm. and says uh you know there was one of those balls that knocked five men into a bloody mash, and I saw it lying on the ground afterwards like a crimson football. Mm. I mean, it's absolutely horrendous. But he, he he manages to pepper the whole battle sequence with just these vignettes, slight small moments, glimpses of what's going on mm. with no real... You know, he does manage to convey the narrative of the battle actually really well, but always mm. from the point of view of what this individual is seeing and experiencing. Mm. And, it, and he gets... Um... The, the black humour, yes, in there as well with with um, with with Jock Sergeant, who's obviously a Peninsula veteran who's seen a thing or two, and he does that classic uh, thing of, of of jokingly trying to scare the young soldiers, yeah, uh, about what's going on. But he, he's trying to reassure them at the same time in, in an odd way. Mm. Um, and and Doyle also he he obviously really done his research on 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 the battle of waterloo beforehand um because he even mentions the fact that a lot of the british soldiers there were were pretty raw yes because uh, a, a large number of the peninsula veterans were still on the atlantic ocean sailing back from the american yeah, war yeah, yeah. and weren't available for use at waterloo so there's this sudden raising uh, which 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 jock and jim are part of raising of of, of almost new levies and new soldiers to come in who yeah. haven't experienced it before. So there's there's that for the officers and the NCOs to contend with as well when they're trying to organize troops. Yes. Um, yeah. And you get a sense of, of as well in these descriptions of, of something of the chaos. 
yes. before and what the, 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 you know, the senior NCOs and the officers are trying to do. And as he points out, a lot of these officers were 16, 17 years old. Mm. Mm. Um, so it, it's, it's just this, this chaotic, it's, it's managed chaos. Yes. And I think, I think the nice thing is because Jock is new to this, he is the perfect narrator for us. Mm. Um, so he mm. is he is one of these raw recruits, and every, even the build up to the battle is is good. So he describes how he's on this long march, and the dust is being kicked up mm. um, so much so that they can't actually see really where they're going. They're following mm. the man in front, and they can hear this noise approaching, this horrendous noise. And somebody explains to them that it's actually the the English heavy heavy cavalry just turning mm. up. But also he thinks the battle has begun when he hears gunshots going mm. off, but actually it's the men clearing their pieces because they've been damp in the night. All those little details that really show he's he's read into this. And mm. I think he this is some of Conan Doyle's best writing in the sense that I think he puts you entirely in the character of Jock to to experience mm. it. You get all the madness and the confusion around you, but but you're getting it from the eyes of somebody who's innocent and new to this as well. Mm. Um, mm. It's very it's a really a, accomplished piece of writing. And what what you've got here is a, is a writer who, uh, you know, he's he's not served himself. Mm. Well. He's not been in a war zone. You know, obviously later on he'll be on the fringes of of the um, the opening fringes of the Sudan campaign uh, under Kitchener, and um, obviously in the Boer War mm. Mm. Uh, he sees something. Although he still didn't see an awful lot of action in that, but here you've you've got a real sense of of, of immediacy. Yeah, um, and where that's come from is is you know he, he's he's read you know some of the great accounts. The the I mean he particularly recommends. The French historian uh, Henri Husset, yes, uh, with his his three volume um, study of Waterloo, as and I think Doyle said, so it's the best strategic study available, yes. um, and also interesting because it gives the French perspective. Yeah, so yeah, you get the battle so. from a different view, but also the the, the as, as we were saying earlier, there's there's a lot of memoirs being mm. published at this time. Um, uh, and also uh, an extremely helpful book for 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 Doyle with this was um, Waterloo Letters, mm. uh, edited by Herbert Seiborn, mm. mm. and which came out in eighteen ninety one. Mm. Um, Herbert Seiborn was was a general himself and the son of William Seiborn, yes, who yes. built the Great Waterloo Model, yeah. um, which became a very um, very controversial thing. But as as part of building the Waterloo Model, William Seiborn had had written to officers who were present at Waterloo asking for their perspective on the battle and, and, and where their units were and yeah. so that he could get yeah. everything right on the model. Um, so this great archive yeah. was sat waiting and, and his son Herbert went through and, and published a fraction yes. of what was available. I mean, there's still an ongoing project that Gareth Glover's doing um, on, on the Waterloo archive. It's, it's, it's gone to, I think it's over 12 volumes. Gosh. He's got to now. Um, so what we get from Herbert Seiborn is is just a, a kind of a, a soup song of, mm. of what was available, but extremely useful. Um, and you, you read these accounts, and, and you get a cumulative effect if you keep reading, mm. as you would would read a, a narrative book, and it, it goes in. You you then begin to get a sense of what something of what it must have been like. And and Doyle's obviously suffused himself with this. Yes. Yeah. With with regard to Cyborn, we 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 know. I mean, 
obviously Conan Doyle recommended it in, in Through the Magic Door, but we, we know he must have had a copy, an early copy of this, mm. um, while he was writing um, writing The Great Shadow. Um, there's, there's a certain incidents, direct incidents, which he's taken from the letters to, to give absolutely you know, real verisimilitude yes. to, to his description. I mean, some of the things... I don't know if a, if, a, if a general reader would read and think that's too fantastic, yeah, as ever. But but you know, you go back to Cyborn and it's there. The, the, these, um, I mean, one one incident in particular. You, you've got Jock looking over the battlefield at, uh, at one point, um, and and he says, as he spoke, we saw a strange thing. A Frenchman dressed as an officer of hussars came galloping towards us on a little bay horse. He was screeching, Vive la roi! Vive la roi! at the pitch of his lungs, which was as much as to say that he was a deserter, mm-hmm. since we were for the king and they for the emperor. As he passed us, he roared out in English, The guard is coming! The guard is coming! and so vanished away to the rear, like a leaf blown before a storm. Mm. Now this this actually happened, and it's 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 um, uh, one of the interesting things where you look at eyewitness history mm. and different perspective, different eyewitnesses, and you get a slightly different story. Um, I mean, the Waterloo letters. Um, Colonel Thomas Hunter Blair, who was the brigade major of the Third Brigade, recalled of this incident. I was in the rear of the fifty-second line when the French hussar officer, a deserter, rode up to and joined us. He said we should be attacked by the French guard within half an hour. So there you've got the source yeah. with, with the Hussar yeah. officer. Um, Colonel Colborne remembered this as, as we were ascending the hill, a French colonel of the cuirassiers galloped out of the French ranks, hollowing out, vive la roi, repeatedly, and rode up to me, addressed and said, c'est Napoleon est là, est là avec les gardes. Voilà l'attaque qui se fait. This officer remained with me for some time. So here it becomes a cuirassier officer <laughs> rather than a hussar officer. Yep. Is this people remembering the same incident yep. and not spotted? Or is it, you know, we might have had two deserters. Who yeah, knows, yeah. might have had a hussar and a cuirassier. Um, but Colborne's incident is, is, is bolstered um, by another account, which didn't actually appear in Cyborne, but appeared later. Um, by Ensign William Leake of the 52nd. Mm. Well, he says, A French cuirassier officer came galloping up the slope and down the bank in our front, near to Sir John Colborne, crying, Vive la roi! He was a chef d'escadron and took the opportunity of escaping from the French left wing, that he might show his loyalty to Louis Eighteenth. He told Sir John Colborne that the French Imperial Guard were about to advance and would be led by the Emperor. <laughs> so th- this story appears yep. a few times, and it, yep. it again shows as, as well where you've got Doyle seeing it from Jim's um, Jock's perspective mm. saying oh this man showed he was he must be with us because he's shouting for the king not the emperor mm. and it's almost like Jock is confusing that the Frenchman is, is crying out perhaps for King George the third yes whereas obviously it's this Louis the 18th and, yes. and the the officers hedging his bets and sort of <laughs> once, once this is over I need to get in in the royal army mm. um, so it it's it, fascinating to see how Doyle has, has, has reworked that scene yeah and it obviously grabbed his, his imagination yeah um and and th- th- there's another later incident where you jock saying yeah th- this is this is as the the third brigade you know kind of chases the imperial guard off the field and the guard thinned out in front of us as we pushed on and we found 12 guns looking us in the face 
but we were over them in a moment, and I saw our youngest subaltern scribbling great 71s with a lump of chalk upon them, like the schoolboy that he was. Um, and you go to, to, to Cyborn, uh, you got um, an account from Colonel William Halkett, who, who led a, a Hanoverian battalion who was supporting the 3rd Brigade. Um, and he says, We had the good fortune to take 12 or 14 more guns of the guards in full play on us. On our advance, the sharpshooters supported by a company were sent among a mass of guns and by their fire increased the confusion, made many prisoners and cut the horses from the leading guns. Mm. Next morning, I found marked on these guns 52nd, 71st, etc. Yeah. So... Yeah, Again, you've got direct. Has, has got that. So you really see he's he's read in. I can imagine his notebook. Yeah, I, I think so. There's there's another incident in there. I don't know if it is a genuine one, but it the way it was presented just felt to me like it was lifted from a memoir, which was when late in the battle the French artillery are about to attack and the Allies are, lying, are behind a ridge, and so the French soldier runs up to the ridge and places a handspike at the top so that mm-hmm. the artillery can get the direction. And um, a British ensign runs up and kills the French soldier who's placed the handspike, mm. only for the British ensign to then be speared by a French lancer. Mm. You know, and it, and the the horrible confusion of that moment, but the significance of it, and the the you know the the bravery of both the French soldier placing the handspike and the British mm. ensign dashing it away, mm. it just fe- feels really very real. It feels like it's something that he he will have he will have read. Mm. And you've you've got a real uh, use tragedy in that moment as well with the ensign because he's another one of these schoolboy ensigns, yes. and, and, and it's described as the lance comes out of him, including the pennant. Yes, that's right. Him, and then you've got the boy dying and shouting Helen as he goes. Helen, that's right. It's horrendous, isn't it? It's absolutely horrendous. The, there is also a passing reference in here to Pax Brigade, isn't there? Mm. And and again, it you, you can see. Doyle being careful here, he could have chosen to put his character in Pax Brigade. Yeah. And he didn't. And that, again, I think is, is, is you know, a sign of control in the writer. Yeah. Um, he could have been, to a degree, self-indulgent in that and saying, this is my ancestor's unit. But he's chosen um, to actually put him in, in, in one of the slightly less glamorous units. Yeah, that's right. And also one of the units that's quite late into the battle. Mm. Um, yeah, just take a pounding through the day. Yeah, there's the the descriptions of them having to essentially just lie there and take it. Mm, mm. Uh, and talking of of Dennis Pack, um, there's there's a fascinating little little fact connected to him, which I don't know if Doyle was aware of. Um, <laughs> but Colonel Raynell, who commanded the seventy first Jocks Regiment at the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, in 1831, married Pack's widow, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> There's another great central conflict on the battlefield, which is, of course, Hougoumont, which is central to mm. uh, Stargrove 15 and, and mm. Waterloo. But it is interesting that he puts him into the 71st, who were essentially held in reserve for most of the day. But I guess that's because we're building up to the the great finale, which oh, yes. is that yeah. Jock and Jim are in the same regiment and um, as the French come to charge, who should be in charge but Delissac? Mm. And uh, yes. and it is Jim who, out of his own desperation for revenge, charges mm. solo and because he started, <laughs> everybody else follows. So you get this wonderful 
um, bit where a really pivotal moment in the battle <laughs> actually comes back to the two naive characters that we were introduced to back at West Inch in the borders right at the beginning of the book. It's a lovely way of placing them right at the center of history. Uh, in the same way he, as he would do rather more cheekily with Gerard in in, <laughs> in a completely different tone of, of writing. This again shows how carefully he's set this whole thing up. Yeah. Uh, in describing the battle before the great moment where the 3rd Brigade is involved in, in, in this, this great conflict with, the, with the, the, the last advance of the Imperial Guard, mm. Mm. Um, th- this where he's already shown the chaos of the battlefield and how these sort of mad individual moments yes. can get tied into the greater picture so that it makes it convincing that the, the troops, they've had to you know, go into square all day or lie on the ground and take a pounding. Yeah. You get one who say, you know, charge. Yeah. And, and that, that mass psychology kicks in. Yeah. Yeah. That the officers are unable to control. And particularly you've lost a lot of officers through the day. So the, the control, command and control is beginning to go anyway. Mm. And so it's it's entirely believable, yet ties into the wonderful you know, this kind of wonderful romantic fiction yes. of, of the individual and and the, this kind of man to man duel that's yes. going on between De Lissac and and Jim Horscroft. Yes, um, yeah. and and I think Doyle makes the point that he says it's like a combat from the the Middle Ages, this, this yes. kind of individual thing, um, and so so it all all ties together very nicely. And again, it ties with, with, with history, because as we know, de Lissac is a totally uh, fictional character, and we've been discussing who he might have been based on. Um, but, but at this point in the battle, you, you get one French general who's, who's referred to in, in so many accounts, General Cambron, who was the commander of the, the first chasseurs of yes. the Imperial Guard and was, was mounted in a square of, of the guard, very visible figure like de Lissac. Mm. Um, and and um, you've got this described as in, in Henry Hussey's book. In, in the midst of the firing, some English officers shouted to the veterans to surrender. Cambron, who was on horseback in the square of the 2nd Battalion of the 1st Chasseurs, heard this. With despair in his breast, suffocated with rage, exasperated by the incessant summons of the enemy, he retorted furiously, Merde! <laughs> it's one of the, 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 the famous moments of the battle. I mean, it, it's been romanticized later on to, and, and, and tidied up. <laughs> um, for Cambron to say, La garde meurt, elle ne surrend pas. The guard dies, but it does not surrender. Yes. Um, but the reality was probably the more profane. <laughs> probably the former. They shouted at the British officers. Oh, I should think um, so. But this, this is, I, I, I do think that, that Cambron is, at this point, the one that, that, that Doyle yeah. is drawing on yeah. for de Lissac. Um, Cambron you know, survived the battle. Yeah. He took a head wound, but he was he was captured by I think it was Halkett, the, the Hanoverian officer. Mm. Um captured him. There's there's a great description of, of, of him surrendering to Halkett and then, then running off, taking French leave, as Halkett puts it. <laughs> and Halkett grabs his agilette and oh no, no, you don't. <laughs> um so yeah. all like this 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 is as I say, Donald's absolutely he, he's he's immersed himself. In this and and it shows yeah and it is and you know he gets criticized in a lot of his historical fiction for being heavy-handed and yet here he is actually using the detail that he's collected to tell mm. the story and to keep 
you know, ultimately it builds to this final climactic duel between um, Delisac and, and Jim, which we don't actually see, but we do see the aftermath mm-hmm. um, when you get the uh, Major Elliot tapping Jock on the shoulder and asking him to help him tally the dead. Mm-hmm. And they find uh, Jim dead on the battlefield, um, his eyes still open, looking mm-hmm. up at the uh, at the moon. That actually almost comes straight out of one of Mercer's stories mm-hmm. of his own his own touring of the battlefield shortly after midnight. Uh, and then you get they come across Delisac, who is mortally wounded, but has enough life in him to mm-hmm. give a bit of more exposition <laughs> towards the end of the book <laughs> to explain why he was quite so much in uh, in fear of uh, of being caught. It turns out that he was sent to execute Duke Dongyan, which is a particularly ignoble. It was a crime. Yeah, uh, it's 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 one that Napoleon's apologists always have a difficulty with this one. Yeah, because uh, the Duke d'Anguin essentially he wasn't totally harmless, but he wasn't a direct threat to mm. Napoleon, and yet Napoleon had him kidnapped and shot. Yeah. Um, I, again, a lot of Napoleonic apologists will argue how it's, they'll try and blame it on Talleyrand. <laughs> or somebody like that and say it wasn't really Napoleon's fault, but it was. It was it was yeah. spiteful and unnecessary crime. Yes. Um and and to place de Lissac in command of the firing squad, it's a pretty serious thing to throw at him. It's very deliberate, isn't it? Because mm. uh, and it's also historically significant in the sense that, that the the murder of the Duke d'Anguin is something that horrified European nobility and also, you know, notably Alexander I of Russia. Mm. And it turns it turns opinion, mm. and and it does colour Delisac in a way that he hasn't been coloured before, actually. Yeah, and, um, and and he would definitely be a victim of the White Terror had he survived Waterloo. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And talking mm. of the Duke Dongyen and his demise, uh, connects us to the sort of literary influences on the final act because mm. uh, the Duke d'Anguien is, is referenced right at the start mm. of War and Peace. Mm. Uh, but there's also two other books, I think, in particular, that I think Conan Doyle will have been very familiar with and will have absorbed mm. into his depiction of Waterloo. One of them is um, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, of course, 1862. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, that that has about 19, 20 chapters devoted to the battle. It's often criticised for mm. um, some of its historical depiction, particularly the legend of the sunken lane, mm. uh, which nevertheless manages to make itself into into the 1970 movie Waterloo. Mm. Um, Les Miserables starts from the perspective of somebody 50 years on thinking mm. back to the events, and that's what we get right at the beginning of The Great Shadow. Jock is some 50 years hence thinking mm. back on the events. And the other one is, of course, Erkman Chatrian's Waterloo 1865. Mm. The French authors, Emile Erkman and Alexandre Chatrian, they have a terrific book, Waterloo, which again follows in bravura style the sort of lives of multiple characters, not just soldiers, but also civilians as well. What connects Hugo and Erkman Chatrian and indeed The Great Shadow is that it doesn't shy away from the horrors of war. And as much as it has heroism, it also has those moments of deep despair and horror. Mm. And it's kind of you know, history from the bottom up, as it were, mm. which which you're getting with the with the with the Oakman Chatrian. And the Oakman Chatrian is part of a you know a trilogy. There's, there's the, yes. the blockade and the conscript of 1813, and then Waterloo finishes it. And, and as you say, the, the 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 descriptions of combat in in 
in Waterloo are, are again very hard hitting. Yeah, very. Um, and it, it's it's perhaps worth pondering the fact that the Erkman Chatrian were also famous for their horror stories. Yes, um, and and you know re- again very effective stories, and and that will probably have helped them with this. And, and obviously Conan Doyle. Mm was was pretty good at his gothic and horror stuff <laughs> which you know as you say he doesn't revel in it but it gives you that edge there's, there's an edge to spotting the really the thing that will will strike a nerve yes uh, like you've said with the with the the uh, the, the cannonball as a crimson. crimson football it's yeah. that spotting the actual detail mm-hmm. um but the the other thing that, that that's different with the the, the two uh, where you mentioned hugo and tolstoy mm-hmm. is the fact that obviously they're both sweeping Yes, no, they're, they're on the on the grand scale. They are, um, but they're also propagandists. Yes, it, it, both in their different ways. Victor Hugo is is propagandizing for the for the empire and how how you know, Napoleon was cheated. Mm. All of that that sort of uh, idea is running through it. Tolstoy is is his purpose is to glorify the Russian peasantry and the Russian people, mm. um, led by their 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 marshal Kutuzov. Mm. And so he, he's he's got that going on so they're all trying to do different rework this era of history in their own way yes i I find it a shame that the the great shadow is it is overshadowed it is as it were (laughs) by doyle's other other work he he, it's 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 a forgotten gem yeah and 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 it's worth perhaps concluding at this point with you know a couple of the reviews that came out Mm. at the time that really did you know, and really did praise Conan Doyle for the quality of writing this. It's very hard to find a, a negative review of The Great Shadow. Mm. Um, you know, one of them, the Daily News, uh, 31st of October, 1892, actually says Conan Doyle's style has a simplicity and directness which reminds one of Robert Louis Stevenson's writings, just mm-hmm. like we were saying before. The Bristol Mercury, 4th November, 1892. The description of Waterloo from the point of view of a soldier who took part in the memorable fight and can only describe what occurred in front of him is the finest passage in the book and is enough to make it popular. Um, mm. And similarly, the Western Daily Mail, 7th November, 1892, the man in the ranks sees little or nothing of the great game. He sees merely what transpires in his own very restricted sphere. And what the British linesman has to tell of the horrors of war is told with great skill and point, depending least of all on high-sounding phrases. And, you know, I think those are pretty good summings up of the excellent third act of what is actually a very good three act novel mm. as you say has got very has had very little attention mm. so that brings us to the end of the podcast if you want to read the show notes you can find them at doingsofdoyle.com and if you've enjoyed the episode then please give us a rating or review on your podcaster of choice or perhaps consider sponsoring the podcast as a patron which and you can find out details of how to do that at the website so paul what have we got next time next time it's another one of our interview shows and we'll be talking to uh, glenn and kathy maranka glenn is, is well known as one of the great um, doyle and sherlock holmes collectors hmm. um but um he and kathy have just or they're just about to issue um a facsimile uh, printing of uh, Conan Doyle's uh, lecture, The Romance of Medicine, uh, with accompanying um, scholarly notes, etc. Um, so we'll be talking to them about their collection and about that volume. That's great. So that's something to look forward to for next month. Until mm. then, it's goodbye from me. 
And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Your Majesty, the monster has escaped from Elba. Well, it's not dramatized yet. Napoleon and his followers, the thousand men, they're not really dangerous yet. Marshal Salt, you'll keep command of our troops here in Paris. Marshal Ney, you will be the first to confront the werewolf. I know you love this man. I did, once. But I promise your majesty I'll bring him back to Paris in an iron cage. <laughs>